Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting legal story this week was that of the notorious biker gang, the Mongols, and their survival uh, as a gang and how it could hinge on a trademark law. The Mongols are currently in court facing a series of racketeering charges And the feds are hoping to take away their trademark insignia, their trademark logo, in hopes to strip their identity from them. It's an interesting tactic to try to shut down the motorcycle club. For that, we spoke to Joel Rubin. He's a reporter with the LA Times. And we start off with a little bit of background of who the Mongols are. They are locked in yet another legal battle with the federal government. This is the second major racketeering case over the past decade that the federal government has brought against the Mongols. The Mongols, just by way of background, are one of a handful of what the, the feds call a uh, outlaw motorcycle gang. We have in this group the Hells Angels, the Vagos, the Outlaws, and other assorted groups that take a certain amount of pride in sort of identifying as these motorcycle clubs that exist outside the norm. They call themselves the one percenters because they say 99% of motorcycle gangs are law-abiding and innocent social clubs. And then there are these guys. They don't do anything to discourage the portrayal as being just that as outlaws. The current case is a racketeering case, as I said, and the government has brought it against the gang's leadership group called Mongol Nation. The government is hoping that if they get a guilty verdict, right now the jury is deliberating after weeks of testimony and if the jury comes back with a guilty verdict, the government hopes to convince the judge that the gang should forfeit the trademark that they have over their insignia. They have this image that they all wear on the back of their biker jackets and elsewhere to identify themselves as part of this gang. And they have a trademark on it and the government wants it. I've lived in Southern California all of my life. And I just remember numerous occasions driving on the freeway. You hear the rumble of the motorcycles and you see them all pass by and you notice the leather vest with the patch on there. It looks like an Asian man with a ponytail. He's wearing sunglasses, riding a motorcycle, and then the big letters, it says Mongols on there. So they're easily identifiable. I guess what they're hoping to do is that if they get a guilty verdict, they're going to take ownership of that trademark and then not let them wear it. They think that this will strip their identity from the motorcycle club. I don't know if that's necessarily going to work. They could still be a motorcycle gang without that logo. They might get a new logo. That's the big question. Yeah, we talked to several trademark lawyers and experts about this legal theory that the government appears to be pursuing, and they've been pursuing it for some time. They tried it back in a previous case that they brought against the Mongols and seemed to be having some success with judges, but in the end did not succeed in getting the trademark for more of a legal technicality that the people that they were bringing the lawsuit against didn't technically own the the trademark. So this time around, they're hoping to have more success, and they seem to be 
pursuing this idea that if the government can get their hands on the ownership of this trademark, that then they would have control over who has the right to wear the trademark or wear any piece of clothing with the trademarked image on it. Experts I've talked to said, you know, I'm not so sure that that's going to play out either practically or even legally. There's a host of constitutional issues. You know, somebody could say, I have every right under the First Amendment to express myself, and this is how I choose to do it by wearing this image. And then on a trademark front, people said, I'm just not sure trademark law gives somebody or gives the government the authority to go and pull a jacket off their back because it has a trademark image on it. I mean, if anything, all you're doing is making those instant collector's items, (laughs) you know, people (laughs) wanting to snatch up as many as they can can and just hold them for whatever reason. Yes, I think you'd see on eBay and prices going up for Mongol attire. But, you know, I think at the heart of it is this idea that these images, this, this insignia and the patches that the Mongols and other motorcycle clubs wear are, according to the folks I talk to, these images are crucial to them. They're crucial to their identity. They are sacred images for them, and they take a lot of pride in wearing them. It's how they identify themselves at social gatherings and how they identify where they fit in on the hierarchy, which is this very unwritten but very strict sort of hierarchy of seniority and who has authority over who. And I think the government seems to think that if we can choke off control of that image, that this motorcycle gang won't be adrift in that world. What are some of the things that these guys are allegedly up to? As you were saying, they could pose as any normal social club with a constitution and bylaws and a hierarchy of membership, but they've found some of these outposts for them, a bunch of weapons, bulletproof vests, and in the current case that they're involved in, uh, there was ATF agents who were posing as Mongols members, and uh, you know they were testifying as to what was going on, and they were accused of killing a Hell's Angels member. I mean, this is part of what goes on with these motorcycle clubs. They're kind of warring factions at times. The current case is a case that is largely a repeat or rehash of a prosecution that the government brought against more than 80 members of the Mongol gang back in 2008, and it included a whole host of allegations ranging from several murders to attempted murder to many uh, allegations of drug dealing. And the idea now is the government is trying to convince a jury that all those crimes, which individuals have now pled guilty to from that earlier trial, the government is now trying to make the case that the gang itself or the club itself and its leadership is part of that organized sort of criminal conspiracy. And since they own the trademark, that the government could then seize it through forfeiture. Joel Rubin, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. My favorite story of the week, only because I'm so jealous and wanted to try this out, is that of this lab-grown meat. We've gone from grass-fed to lab-grown now. When you hear about lab-grown meat, usually it takes the form of a ground meat patty. There's an Israeli startup that has made the world's first lab-grown steak. They're hoping to nail down the taste, the texture, the mouthfeel of it. We spoke to Jason Bellini. He's a video correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He took a trip to Israel to try this out, and we started off by talking about the evolution of meat. The evolution of meat, well, it's it's evolving rapidly, it appears. There are a number of companies that are in this space that are racing to create products that will either show up in restaurants, 
show up in stores. Right now, the regulations haven't caught up yet. So they're still working in the labs, trying to get things right, and then they're going to convince the regulators in the U.S. and around the world that it's healthy. We mentioned Just Foods. That was a company we visited out in San Francisco with the chicken nugget. They're saying that they think that they can have this chicken nugget in a restaurant somewhere in Asia. They wouldn't be more specific than that before the end of the year. They think they're in the final stretch of getting it approved by regulators, which would be a, a pretty major milestone. And these companies are, I mean, really excited about this. This could be one of the major disruptors of our time if this really gets up to speed. And there's so many benefits to it. It uses less energy, less land. Greenhouse gases are far less, less water usage to make these things. And then on top of that, you know, for people that are a fan of animals, you, you don't have to slaughter animals for this also. So, I mean, this could potentially be a huge disruptor. Could be huge. Now, their number of obstacles still to overcome. For it to be a true disruptor, they're going to have to get the price point yeah. down to a place where you can buy it in your grocery store at a price that's on par with the meat that's now available. How long that will take is anyone's guess. But with so many companies working on it, making advances, and they've proven the concept at least, then that, that's a possibility in the future. But I think it'd be hard to overstate the implications of this. And some the scholars that we've spoken to that are studying this technology, they're saying that this could be an enormous leap forward for humanity because we could move from this industrial farming agriculture system to one in which meats are produced in laboratories and there are no animals harmed, far fewer resources required to do it. And we could be eating all kinds of meat. If you're able to get stem cells from just about any animal, we could be eating meat from koala bears. Who knows? I don't necessarily uh, want to try that myself, but there, there really is no limit. In fact, I asked one researcher whether you could even take human cells and grow them into meat. And she said, well, yeah, I guess <laughs> you suppose you could. But we um, won't tell you about it first. <laughs> it was, well, I said, well, here's my suggestion to him. I said, you know, you could uh, make uh, human meatballs. And know what you could call them? What do you call them? Cannibals. <laughs> there you go. You like Cannibals. That? <laughs> Let's talk about the chicken nugget first. I'm sure it's kind of a similar way they make the lab-grown steak, but... How did that one taste? And the chicken nugget with lab-grown chicken, it tasted really just like a chicken nugget. I don't want to compare it to McDonald's, but most chicken nuggets, it's an amalgam of meat. It's right. not like a chicken breast. It's not structured. What really drives the taste of a chicken nugget, I'm sorry to say, is not the chicken itself. I think it's the actual coating around it. And yeah. so we never actually get to see the meat before it had the coating on it. Uh, neither company wanted us to, to look at that. I think that's because they didn't want viewers of the video to see it. There, That may not be ready for prime time yet. They're still working on the color and the texture and the look of this stuff. Tons of taste is really good. That was one of the things I noticed about the video that you made that they didn't want to show it to you raw. And that was one of the big questions because I was wondering, is it red just like meat? Does it have that fleshy tone? Because when you cook it, obviously things change. It caramelizes and whatnot, and it turns takes a brown color to it. But I, w I was wondering if it was red just like muscles and stuff. I wonder that too, and don't know, and it's not for lack of trying. Like we tried <laughs> to convince these companies, let us see the raw meat. And but just let me see it, even if we can't put it on camera, so I can at least just talk about it. They weren't into that. Uh, why is, again, probably because they just aren't feeling confident yet. They're worried that uh, that something like this could be tarred as a pink slime or something before right. it even gets a chance to be out of the gate. 
Okay, so let's move on to the lab-grown steak from Aleph Farms. That right there, each little cut that you tried was about $50. I think it took about two weeks or so to develop. They get cells and then they grow them in petri dishes, right? Get cells, grow them in petri dishes. But what they're doing with the steak is a bit different from what we experienced with the chicken nugget, which was that kind of amorphous meat, whereas this it was designed, the steak was designed to be like a steak, to have fat, blood vessels, and achieve the texture, and, and of course muscle cells, get all those together, and they put them on a lattice structure. And the science behind this, that's been developed in the biomedical industry for creating skin and for creating some body tissues. This, the, the technology that they were using to make these steaks, which were very thin, I mean, they were probably two or three credit cards in thickness and not much bigger than that. But anyway, they adapted technology from biomedical science. In labs, they've been working on creating human tissues that could be given to burn victims, for example, used in different types of treatments. Well, that same technology, and actually I've even seen organs that are being grown using a lattice work and taking stem cells and growing them on this lattice work. Well, they have an edible lattice work that they use to grow these steaks. And wow. so their goal is to make eventually a fairly thick steak and it have it be the same consistency, but I mean, many people consider that to be the holy grail of lab-grown meat. Right. If you can make a steak that's indistinguishable from one that we are used to, how long that will take to get there, that's probably a few years away. That's what they're saying. But they feel like they've proven the concept, and they proved it to me. It tasted to me like a normal steak after it was cooked, and it was also about the same consistency. You cut into it and you the same way you would a steak. Was there, I know you were there to, for this story, but was there any apprehension in your mind, like kind of questioning, like, ah, do I really want to taste this? Because obviously you know the process in which it was made. Was there any type of that working in your head while you were tasting it? I'm a little bit more daring than I should be in life. So I had no trepidation. I did have <laughs> to good. sign a waiver saying that I... Would assume, that they would assume no liability for my trying that, but that's because the regulators haven't approved it. But I was quite confident that they weren't going to be hurting me. Yeah. They certainly don't want to do their first journalist to try their steak. They don't want him to have an upset stomach. So I think that plenty of people <laughs> internally had tried it before I had, and it turned out just fine. So the taste and the texture were there. What about fat? Because fat is very important in meat for the flavor and for, and for the texture there as well. Did it have any fat on it or did it just resemble the taste? It had fat. It had fat. They said that when they make these steaks, they're, taking the same stem cells, but they are able to coax those stem cells into producing different types of cells, muscle cells, blood vessel cells, and fat cells. That's all in the fluid that they use to feed these cells in the laboratory, in the Petri dish, effectively. And that matrix of nutrients and proteins that they feed the cells to grow that's their secret sauce, and uh, all these companies are keeping the formula very close to the vest. And the critics of this meat say, well, that's the problem. We don't know what they're feeding to these cells. Are there antibiotics in them? These right. companies won't say. They're not saying what goes in there. How about the smell of it? Did it smell like, because uh, you were there while the chef was cooking it, did it smell like meat that was being cooked? 
It did, and it it had sizzle, and that's certainly one yeah. thing you want from a steak. And I I think that the steak benefited from a celebrated Israeli chef being the one to prepare it. I love the um, way <laughs> I love the way he prepared it in the video. It's so great. I I suggest everybody go take a look at it. it. Had little mushrooms on. It had a perfect little sauce on the bottom. It looked like a professional chef cooked it, so it looked great on the plate. Yes, they were very concerned about the presentation as they made their debut to the world of this product. And uh, I think they they put their best foot forward for us, that's for sure. And you talked about its detractors. There's people that are concerned with what's in it. Obviously, like you said, if there's other hormones or whatnot in there, there's also pushback from the producers of animals and traditional meat, let's say. In Missouri, they have laws on the books to regulate the word meat. You can't call things that are not grown or not part of an animal, you can't call them meat. I would assume that they'd want this to be classified the same way. So there is pushback on this type of meat as well. Right. And it appears that law that you're referring to was preemptive because they're concerned. The industry is concerned that there's going to be these products out there and they perhaps see a threat. Uh, They don't want to quite call it that yet. The ranchers that I spoke with, they're not willing to admit that this is an existential threat to their livelihood, but they're keeping very close track. The industry trade groups representing the ranchers are keeping very close track on this to see what happens. And yes, they would prefer that it not be labeled as meat, not be called meat, whereas the CEO that we spoke to from Just, he's fighting for that label. He He's saying this is meat, it's real cells. What's the difference? Other than it, you didn't have to kill an animal to get it, and so it should be called meat. So there's going to be a food fight over this going forward. The other thing the ranchers wanted for it to be regulated by the USDA the same way that their meat is, the same health and safety standards, but they don't want it to be called the same thing as their product. When all is said and done, you, you, you've you done a lot of research on this. You got to go out there and taste the, the early iterations of this. What do you think? Is this going to be in our future? I mean, I know there's companies are putting tons of money and, and effort into this, but do you think this would take off in a restaurant, in a marketplace, pulling up to the, the counter and saying, hey, let me get a pound of that lab-grown meat? Is this going to be the future? My impression is yes, but I think the early adopters – Maybe people like vegans who right. want to try meat and want to be eat, eat, eat meat without the guilt that they see, they would feel if they were eating it. We even spoke with a rabbi in Israel and asked him, who's a conservative rabbi, mind you, and we asked him, well, would you eat this meat? And would you, what about pork? Would you eat pork that was lab grown? Is that kosher? And he says, well, they're still discussing it, but his inclination is that, yes, that this would be kosher, that we could eat this. So it may serve a niche market at first, especially as it'll probably be more expensive than uh, the standard variety meat that we know in the stores. But, you know, it's a question of how fast they can ramp this up and build this at scale. And I I think that in terms of the infrastructure, it may resemble beer making, beer brewing. That's what few people told us who are working on this is that you'll have these giant vats, what they call biogenerators, and they'll use those to produce these things in large quantities eventually. But first, they got to get the formulation right, and that's what they're all working on. And the formulation is really what they're feeding the cells, what makes them grow and grow quickly and be what you want them to be. Wow. It's fascinating. And as I said at the beginning, 
I'm jealous because I want to try these. I wanted to eat these things. Jason Bellini, video correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, you know where I stand on this. Miranda, would you eat this lab-grown meat? I'd like to say that I would. I don't know if you put it in front of me that I'd be able to eat it. But in this situation where we're just doing a hypothetical, yeah, I'll definitely eat it. What about how Jason said, would you try a human? A lab-grown meat human? I think I, yeah. Ugh. Thanks, Miranda. (laughs) Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.